In a stunning turn of events, the cyber pandemic has ended the pandemic of misinformation. But the ruling elites quickly rebooted their mind control program as they realized that in the process of ridding the world of misinformation and disinformation, they also shut down and killed their own ability to program the children with their progressive liberal globalist agenda. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future, episode 263, coming to you late in the evening of October 6, 2021. From the heart of the Middle East, we have survived uh, Hurricane Shaheen with very little damage, and today's episode, 263, it's a prime number which seems to be fitting since we were not only struck with a hurricane here, but the entire globe. Oh no. The entire globe was struck with a cyber pandemic that took out Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp all in the same time. For six hours, the world was without their precious information. You cannot scroll on your feed for six Precious hours. I don't know if you survived. Um, I'm sure there are going to be groups on, on Clubhouse where you can talk about your traumatic experience and how you didn't know what to do with yourself for those six hours. But but in all seriousness, I, I think a lot of people did freak out that Facebook went down. What happened? Well, according to Facebook's vice president of Inf infrastructure, they said that a configuration change on the backbone routers that coordinated the network traffic between our data centers caused issues that interrupted this communication. In English, it, it, there's something called the G, the BGP, the Border Gateway Protocol, which is a system that the internet uses to pick up and route packets of data to where they need to go in the fastest manner. Well, that crashed somehow and it took them forever to get it up because when they crashed their system with an update, it locked all of their engineers out, actually locked people out of the, the staff buildings because their card entry cards wouldn't work. And then the way their data centers are set up, there are some people who had the knowledge of how to fix it, but didn't have access to fix it because they got locked out of their own platform. Uh, there's a lot of uh, controversy, um, conspiracy going around this, this shutdown of Facebook and Instagram as a whistleblower has come out to, to Congress. Uh, her name is Francine, Francis Hagen, and she has been spilling all the beans about how horrible Facebook is. And we're going to get into just that. But one of the conspiracies is that they shut down their servers to delete a bunch of data and purge their systems so they wouldn't get caught. I think that's a load of baloney. I think it's uh, it's human error that they made a mistake and it crashed. And uh, luckily it did because that you had six hours of freedom. Whether you realized it or not, you were given six hours of your life back. The globe was given six hours of their lives back. It's, but it is startling to think how, how reliant 
a majority of the world is on those three platforms, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook. They are behemoths. People weren't able to log into other platforms because their logins were via Facebook. People's businesses were shut down because their businesses are run entirely on Facebook or entirely on Instagram. And it's something we've talked about here multiple times on the show, decentralization. Decentralization. If, if you're, all your baskets are in Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram, that's where your life is. That's where your list is. That is where your, your pathways of communications are. Or if it's all on the iOS system, if it's all on any singular point, if you don't own your list, if you don't own your email list, if you don't have a backup of that email list, if you're not broad and decentralized, you are, you are vulnerable. You are vulnerable if you are not able to have, if you're not establishing and having face-to-face phone relationships, SMS, text, a telegram. Telegram actually went from being, I believe, 56th most downloaded app in America to fifth in a matter of six hours. Telegram. You can find me on Telegram. Links in the show notes. But it's a great place to be able to decentralize your, your, your modes of communication. Because it, what happened this week on, on Tuesday with the shutdown, it shows you just how fragile and how complex the systems that we live in are today. The, the logistics that enabled me to have this cup of tea right now. The logistics that enabled me to have coffee every morning. The logistics that enables us to have food from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world, nearly any point in our lives that have fresh fruit year round. These are, are, are modern day wonders. The, the lifestyle that we are able to live, the kings of old would have been jealous. They would trade the, the, the biggest king from 200 years ago would trade the life of any lower middle-class person uh, anywhere in the globe, a hundred percent hands down, just this, our spice cabinets alone, our, our, our healthcare system alone, our, our length of life alone, it rivals every other time in history while at the same time, the way that our societies are placed together, they're highly complex systems. And if something gets wrong, if something is out of whack, things can start to get a little lopsided. So that's just a a rant to open us up this morning on defending ourselves from centralization and moving to broad and decentralized places and platforms, which is one reason that I love podcasting because it's broad and decentralized. You can listen on the platform that you want. You can go and get an RSS feed and you can download and you can listen to this at your time as you want There is not an algorithm standing between you and this show. Now, as I said, the the, the shutdown, the the shutdown of the the Facebookings, IG, WhatsApp ended the pandemic of misinformation because of the, the cyber pandemic. If you remember all those malware attacks, it was being labeled the cyber pandemic. Well, the cyber pandemic has taken out for at least a short period of time, 
all of that misinformation that is plaguing the world. But at the same time, as we said in the intro, it is also taken out Big tech's ability to shape and mold the minds of the future, to program the minds of the future for better or for worse. Well, a whistleblower, as we said, uh, Francis, Francine, Francine, Francis, Francis is a boy's name. Francine, I'm going to call her Francie Hagan. Oh my gosh, Francine Hagan. She was testifying before Congress in the United States. And I know. Most of the listenership of this show is not in the United States, but these these things matter. And this is going to relate to, uh, in the United States, in uh, Section 230, which is what enables, enables social media platforms to operate as social media platforms and not journalists or publishers. And the same thing is in India with Section 71. These these sections, these articles, Article 70, uh, they enable these platforms to operate with with impunity where they can't get sued for something that you post, which is a great thing in many ways because it enables you to post what you want. You don't have to have someone checking to make sure that it's okay, but it has moved from just us being able to publish on these platforms to the platforms then curating and having algorithms and having fact checks below because remember there's the pandemic of misinformation ladies and gentlemen but this whistleblower has come out and is sharing how facebook how instagram how these platforms are reprogramming our minds and causing extensive damage to youth and young adults our mental health is at war because of our addiction to these platforms, our addiction to the phone. Last week, a, a study came out from Facebook citing that they have data pointing to the fact that their platform is harming teenagers and women. And then Facebook goes on to deny that. Well, this whistleblower. Francis Francine is coming out in essentially refuting all of Facebook's lies, saying that no, they in fact do have data on teens and young women and how it is affecting their mental health for the worse. Here is uh, Hagen in front of Congress. Uh, Ms. Hogan, last week the committee heard directly from Ms. Davis, the global head of safety for Facebook. During the hearing, the company contested their own internal research as if it does not exist. Yes or no, does Facebook have internal research indicating that Instagram harms teens, particularly harming perceptions of body image, which disproportionately affects young women? Yes, Facebook has extensive research on the impacts of its products on teenagers, including young women. Remember, there are billions of people on this platform, billions of people between the three, especially on Facebook and Instagram. And it's not just teens, but children. Children are also on these platforms. Now, Facebook says, well, they ask a question, say, are you under 13? If you are, you can't get on. But we all know that kids are on these platforms. 
We all know that kids are extensively using these platforms, are addicted to their phones. Now, that is not solely the responsibility of Facebook. That is a parent's responsibility, ultimately, to make sure that your kid does not have access to a smartphone day and night or at all because it is studies are showing how these smartphones when kids are addicted are connected to these phones it is rewiring their brains and we don't know the long lasting side effects and, and, and massive longitudinal studies of 80 years because this technology is new but what we have seen in the short amount of time that these phones cause anxiety, they cause fear, they cause insomnia, and they cause a massive amount of addiction because they were programmed this way. They were created this way with social psychologists figuring out how to rewrite our dopamine cycle so that we cannot put it down, so that each buzz, you're picking up the phone, and we get another dopamine hit and another dopamine hit, but this is happening to young kids as their brains are still developing. Our brains continue to develop until we're about 25. So even in the, these teen years, these phones are creating new neural pathways that are going to have devastating damage on the mental health of this generation. Well, Hogan goes on to, to share that Facebook is actually doing research on children that they deny are on their platform. I want to emphasize how vital it is that Facebook should have to publish the mechanisms by which it tries to detect these children because they are on the platform in far greater numbers than anyone is aware. Um, I do believe that, or I am aware that Facebook is doing research on children under the age of 13, and they those studies are included in my disclosure. Now, of course, doing a study on, uh, on a group under the age of 13 or under the age of 18, that is not a crime. That happens all the time. However. This is our private data. These are your children's private data if you're allowing them on these platforms. This is our private data that they are scraping, that they are using to create profiles, to create understandings of psychology, of how these platforms are affecting them for better or for worse. These are tools that can be used for good or for bad. But children should not be on these platforms to begin with. And you, you, at least I do, I stop and question, as I said before, what is the long-term effects of these? Are these platforms using our data responsibly or are they using our data to make money? Because, make money, to make money off of you because you are the product. Our children are the product. These, these platforms are free. And the more that we scroll, they are selling your time, your attention to marketers. And it's coming at the expense of our mental health. It's coming at the expense of our attention span. It's coming at the expense of our ability to focus and do deep work. It's coming at the expense of our memory. It might seem like our memory is great and improving because we can look at Google and we can find anything in a moment. But... In reality, our memory is declining. Our, our cognitive sharpness is declining as we become more and more addicted to our phones and using them as a crutch. Well, Hogan goes on to answer a question from Congress saying, 
what would be the one thing, uh, a legislative piece that she would put in place? What regulations or legal actions by Congress or by administrative action Hmm. do you think would have the most consequence or would be feared most by Facebook, Hmm. Instagram, or allied companies? Um, I strongly encourage reforming Section 230 to um, exempt decisions about algorithms, right? So um, modifying 230 around content, I think, has uh, it's it's very complicated because uh, user-generated content is something that companies have less control over. They have 100% control over their algorithms. The moment that they have 100% control over their algorithms, and they all do, They are a publisher. They are publishing and curating your feed, my feed, everyone's feed, those blue checks. That is them curating and saying, these are the pre-approved sources. And that is a form of of fact-checking. That is a form of putting their credence behind something and pushing something so that it is accepted more widely. All the little fact-checks, anytime that you post something, that fact check, that is them exercising uh, their, their editorial rights over their platform. But that violates, the moment that they do that, it violates Section 230, it violates Article 70 in India, which enables these platforms to act as bulletin boards, but they're no longer acting that way. So I, I fully agree, something needs to be done about these algorithms because they are shaping the way that we think. They are polarizing people by and large. Now, the argument then becomes, if there aren't these algorithms, if you don't have the algorithm controlling your life and controlling your feed, you will become so miserable with the platform. You won't like it. You'll hate it. And you'll just end up leaving. But these platforms really, and these algorithms really, are helping your life so much. And by us having this algorithm, you're actually enjoying the platform. This is not entirely true. However, here is Hogan is again, uh, essentially creating a rebuttal to that common argument that Facebook and Instagram give. Facebook is going to say, you don't want to give up engagement-based ranking. You're not going to like Facebook as much if we're not picking out the content for you. That's, that's just not true. There are a lot of, Facebook likes to present things as false choices, like you have to choose between having lots of spam. Like let's say imagine we ordered our feeds by time, like on iMessage or on, um, there are other forms of, of social media that are chronologically based. They're gonna say, you're gonna, get spam, you're gonna get spammed, like you're not gonna enjoy your feed. The reality is that those experiences have a lot of permutations. There are ways that we can make those experiences where computers don't regulate what we see we together socially regulate what we see. Um, but they don't want us to have that conversation because Facebook knows that when they pick out their co- the content that we focus on using computers, we spend more time on their platform, they make more money. Um, That's what it's all about. Dangers of engagement-based ranking are that Facebook knows that content that elicits an extreme reaction from you is more likely to get a click, a comment, or reshare. And it's interesting because those clicks and comments and reshares aren't even necessarily for your benefit. It's because they know that other people will produce more content if they get the likes and comments and reshares. 
they prioritize content in your feed so that you will give little hits of dopamine to your friends so they will create more content. And they have run experiments on people, producer side experiments, where they have confirmed this. This is, this is the hamster wheel of big tech, the hamster wheel of social media sites. It, and as a creator, you know, I'm a creator. The reason that I am here doing this long form podcast is precisely because, precisely because I want to do deep work. And I find myself when I'm caught up in the producing micro content after micro content on these platforms, I'm not very good at it. I know a lot of people who are excellent at it. They're able to build their audiences on it. The way that I think, the way that I communicate, I don't feel like it suits its best and I haven't, I haven't developed that skill as well. At the same time, I love long form content. I love being able to unpack an idea, take time, break something down, look into something at detail. But the way the algorithm works, the way the producer side of creating content works is that Facebook wants you, Instagram wants you to create content for them for free and then pay them to promote your content. Why? So that they can have content to push out to people so that there can be more engagement so they can sell ad space. It's, it, we all know this. But this is the, the racket that we are all caught up in. Rather than breaking free from shallow, distracted content and going into deep work, going into something that is substantial, going into the, the depths of our brain, the depths of our craft, and bringing something out in the world that wasn't just created in, in seven hours or seven minutes or at the spur of the moment, but taking our time to develop and nurture something that has qualitative work that stands the test of time. There are people who do that, but it's growing few and far between because we are so pressured by these algorithms to show up daily, twice a day, three times, four times a day, because if we don't, we can't break through the algorithm. Well, this is all creating in people what's called nomophobia. We've talked about nomophobia on the show before, which means the fear of not having your mobile phone on you. This is a growing phenomenon that many people suffer from. I, I found one study, a recent study on this, where it looked at high school, college age, and young adult people across the globe, from Bahrain to Kuwait, India, USA, Iran, Italy, Pakistan, Israel, Australia, Turkey. So uh, widespread, not totally cohesive across the globe. They do say it was a small study. It wasn't a large-scale study. But the core focus of the systematic review and the meta-analysis is on severe nomophobia since it is associated with a serious impact on health because it promotes the development of mental disorders, personality disorders, and increased risk of developing depression anxiety, anger, aggressiveness, stress, nervousness, and sleep disorders. This phone 
that we think is our friend because it's glued to our hand 24-7, 365, wherever we go, our closest comrade, it's not our friend. Many of us have an addictive, abusive relationship with that phone every moment that it buzzes, and it's causing mental disorders, personality disorders, depression, anxiety, anger, aggressiveness, stress, nervousness, sleep disorders, insomnia. The study showed that the prevalence of moderate to severe nomophobia among all populations using this research tool and the tool that they did was 70.76%. 70% of everyone that they had participate in the study and then measuring it out to the global population, they estimate 70% of people have moderate to severe nomophobia. The prevalence of severe nomophobia in all populations using this measure is 80, or sorry, excuse me, 20.81%, 20%. Notable, this finding is similar to the lifetime pooled prevalence of anxiety disorder, which is estimated at 16%. Overlapping prevalence rates between anxiety disorders and nomophobia point to the potential bi-directional relationship between nomophobia and anxiety disorders, suggesting the importance of considering another psychometric comorbidity when evaluating nomophobia and vice versa, aka it seems that these two are interconnected. It seems that people who have a predisposition to anxiety disorders are going to find themselves on phones more because it's a way that they're trying to cope with their disorders and or these phones are actually causing an increase of anxiety in young people's lives as they totally rewrite their brain. There's a second study that was, that was done, and the conclusion of the study showed that both nomophobia and addictive use of social media are potential risk factors in adolescence insomnia. The present study seems to be the first longitudinal investive investigative relationship between nomophobia, addictive use of social media, and insomnia among adolescents. Healthcare providers and others should consider the importance of reducing nomophobia and addictive use of social media in adolescents to improve their sleep. And we know what happens if you don't get sleep. If you're not getting enough sleep, you're going to have a shorter life. Your body is going to be unhealthy. Your mind is not going to think clearly. And if you are in that cycle of not getting enough sleep, you are going to wake up and turn turn to your phone because you're already struggling. You're already just trying to get through the day. You're just coping, trying to get through life, addicted. This is what our youth is growing up in. And we have to... I mean, I'm a youth as well. I, I, I for sure probably have some nomophobia because I'm connected to my phone. But I, I yearn, I long, I'm working, I'm taking active steps in my life to break away, to set boundaries where the first hour of the day, I wake up, I'm not on my phone for a full hour, not checking a single text, text message not scrolling through anything, not looking to see what messages I got while I was sleeping, but saying for the first hour, 
I am going to set the rhythm of my day. I am going to set the rhythm of my life. Instead of being reactive to everything in my inbox and my emails and my text messages and the news and the, the, whatever is happening on Instagram, I'm going to take a step back and become proactive rather than being reactive and taking steps to create deeper rhythms of work, to create deep work rather than, rather than being distracted with the shallow clickbait of social media that spins on and on and on. And I challenge you, I want to challenge you as well, that if you want to uncover your purpose, if you want to shape and own your future that is done through pushing aside distractions, pushing aside shallow work and diving deep into your creative work, whatever that might be, whether that's being a baker, whether that's being a lawyer, whether that's being a, a, a father or a mother or a writer, a photographer, an artist, a school teacher, diving deep into your work and pushing the distractions aside because that is where we will uncover our purpose. We will uncover the richness and the pleasures of life and we'll break free from the, the, the meaningless anxieties of social media. Yeah, that makes sense. In a post-truth society where we have exchanged truth for lies and reason for postmodern rationality, the absurd finally makes sense. We, a couple episodes back, we had Justin Trudeau on the show. And he was stumbling over LGBTQ LMNOP. Well, Justin Trudeau is back. And this time he's back with a tweet. <laughs> oh my goodness. He says, across the country, people are lighting candles to honor indigenous women, girls, and this is a mouthful. This is this is the whole point of this segment right now. 2SLGBTQQIA+. That's 11-11. 2SLGBTQQIA+. I don't even know what that all stands for. People who, have, who have, are missing or have been murdered, we must continue to work together to raise awareness and advocate to end the ongoing national tragedy. Of course, there he's making a reference also in this to the the young white girl that was missing, went missing and was murdered in America. And the the progressive were, were all up in arms because you know it's a missing white girl syndrome. So it's only right that we you know we have a a tweet and add some more letters to the alphabet to SLGBT. I mean, again, getting out of hand. But it's to them, to those who are deep into this progressivism, it's, it's not insane to them. They, it's not something that they're putting on. It's not a show that they're putting on. They believe it to their core. They believe it to their core. When you listen to some of these uh, activists talk, here is a, a pro-abortion activist, Mahila Aziz, as, as is, uh, 
I'm not good with names. Dear Lord, I need to work on that. Here's her speaking in front of Congress, United States Congress, about how when we use the word pregnant woman, it's quite uh, offensive and it's not inclusive to all people who are really in this conversation. And I just wanted to acknowledge a lot of people are being left out of this conversation today because as we know, people get pregnant and not just women. But I hear people over and over and over again say women get pregnant, but that's excluding people that should be a part of this conversation. Well, thank you, Mahila, for reminding us that uh, trans women, trans men, biological men who decide that they're women, no, they can't. They can't have babies. It's biological women who decide that they're men are now the men who supposedly are men that can have babies. So we, we need to say birthing people or pregnant people uh, because we, you know, we have to be inclusive. As I said, they, they believe this. They believe that the emperor has no clothes, that if you change a definition, if you change the semantics, it is what it is what you make it to be. It is what you believe that it is because you are the one that defines your truth. You are the one that defines your reality. Live your truth. Live your truth. You are a queen. You're a king. Well, and the reason that we're going through this is because these ideas, they are pathogens. They, it is a pandemic of these ideas. And they're not isolated to one country, they are spreading over this phone, over the media. These ideas are spreading through the airwaves. They are spreading through the media, and there is not a single corner of the earth where these ideas are not being adopted as you listen to this show right now. There's not a single place across the Khalij, across the, the Gulf, if you live in the Gulf, you know that there are people who are beginning to adopt these ideas, who are beginning to talk like this. Across Africa, across India, across Asia, these ideas are gaining traction. And, and really, in my mind, it is we are witnessing the, the fall and the moral decline of the West. It is not all in the West, but... <laughs> When my wife and I are back in the States, our family is spread, our family is spread pretty thin. So, so we end up having to go to lots of different states while we're there. And it gives us the opportunity to really see the broad spectrum of America in little, in little segments and little slivers to see the way that people are thinking and people are talking. And Wherever you go, you walk into a Target or a Walmart and you hear the conversation that people are having on the phone and you're thinking, what world are we living in? You see the, the rainbow flags down every single boulevard and you think to yourself, what sort of society has America become? Now, those, those people who are, are living in America, if you're living in America, you probably... It's as if you're in a pot that's slowly warming to a boil. But when we come back, it's like it's culture shock every time because we live very much isolated from these pathogens that are so potent outside of the internet. But these ideas 
are spreading. Well, there was a a proposed law made in Pennsylvania by a, a Democrat lawmaker. And it's supposedly this is satire. I'm pretty sure this was a satirical law that was aimed at um, attacking the 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 heartbeat bill in Texas. The heartbeat bill in Texas was saying that once a heartbeat is detected in a baby in the mother's womb, which normally happens around six, six and a half weeks, you're able to detect a heartbeat. At that point, you're not allowed to electively abort the baby. Unless there is a, a dire medical situation where then there are exceptions that are made. So it, this bill is satire, I do believe, that is making fun and pointing at this heartbeat bill. But really, when you, when you read it, it is truly the way that people are thinking. This is truly the language that people are using in all seriousness in the West right now. It is a complete collapse and moral decline. I want to read a couple lines from this bill that a, a U.S. congressman uh, presented to, to the state of Pennsylvania. For far too long, the public debate around abortion, contraception, and related reproductive matters have thrust government into the center of restrictions on bodily autonomy of women and girls. Rarely is there a meaningful dialogue around public policy focusing on the personal responsibility of cisgendered men in this sphere. He goes on, in order to improve public health outcomes and release sweet justice into our households and bedrooms, we must wrap our love of individual liberty and moral imperative of the greater personal responsibility and acknowledge men's essential role in procreation. Therefore, I will be introducing legislation that will require all inseminators, because remember, an inseminator can now be a woman, it no longer matters your, your actual biology. Inseminators to undergo vasectomies within six weeks from having their third child or 40th birthday, whichever comes first. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll finish reading and then I'll give my, uh, my thoughts here. As long as state legislature continues to restrict reproductive rights of cis women, trans men, and non-binary non -binary people, there should be laws that address the responsibility of men who impregnate them. And he shouldn't have said men there. The responsibility of uh, inseminators who impregnate them. I have to correct his pronouns there. My goodness, I'm a little offended myself. Thus, my bill will also codify wrongful conception to include when a person has demonstrated negligence towards preventing conception during intercourse. As crazy and as satirical as this sounds, as this is, you know what? I bet if they could get this passed, the progressives would be cheering. Finally, we, we have a three-child policy in the state of Pennsylvania. Finally, Men are being thrown in jail and, and having vasectomies at 40 or thrown in jail if they don't. And after three kids, by law, 
you know, the government will have the full rights to just go in and snip, snip. It's it, even though it is satire, it is truly the way that this movement is thinking it is truly the way that the, the progressive ideology thinks because it is the logical conclusion of their axioms of their pre their, their adopted premises and truths. It is the logical conclusions and outplaying of the way they see society working together. Fitting together and not fitting together. And it is, not only is it despicable, but it's saddening because it, it truly, it truly is the, the moral decline of the West, the moral decline of America that has been happening for decades, but it's being exported all across the world. As I said, they, they believe this heart, soul, mind, and body to the point where Laurel Hubbard, who was the, the transgendered uh, male competing as a female in the Olympics, didn't medal, didn't place, was beaten by many women, actual women. He, she, won, he, won the transgendered, won the, the Sports Woman of the Year Award. This is how much they believe it. That a, a man, a 40-year-old man that was beaten by a bunch of 20-year-old girls in the Olympics won the Woman of the Year Award, Sportswoman of the Year. You can't, you can't make it up. And they fully believe these. It's more than lies. They fully believe this deception. They are fully swimming and breathing and drinking this water. They believe this to be the truth of society, the truth of reality. Well, the show is brought to you by listeners like you. This is a value for value podcast. We don't have advertisers on the show, but it is supported and funded just by listeners like you who give value back to the show in the very manner that they get value out of it. And that is dependent on you and the value that you feel this show provides to your life. Now, thousands of people tune into this show every month, and our mission has never been more clear, never been more vital, which is if we can better understand the world around us, then we can navigate through the pitfalls and traps and snares to reach our goals, to uncover our purpose, and ultimately to own the future. So you can give by visiting lucasgrobot.com and you can give your hard, cold fiat there. Or you can get a podcasting 2.0 certified app by visiting newpodcastapps.com. And you can get a podcast app like Pod friend or breeze where you can load up your bitcoin wallet and you can stream satoshis as you listen don't go away we'll be right back with our closing weaver and loom segment Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. Today's quote, it's not so ancient, 
But it is, uh, I found it from Stephen Hicks, who has been on the show, who's a professor of philosophy. And he wrote this, you could go to Alaska, get mauled by a grizzly bear and die. You could travel to the Brazilian Amazon, catch a virus and die. You could climb a Himalayan mountain, fall off and die. Or you could sit safe on your couch, eat chips and die. Everything that we do involves risk. And at the end of the day, we will each die. A bold man will go out on the streets. The, the, the fool, the, the anxious, the fearful will say, there's a lion outside. There's a lion on the streets. But a bold man will go out and face that lion. But a, a, a foolish, a spineless person won't even go out because there, there might be a lion on the streets, but they're not. You and I, let us be people who face our fears, who face the lions that are in our paths, the ways that the risks that we have to face to reach our goals, to summit those mountains, because the alternative, the alternative would be to sit on our couches, to sit on our butts, to eat chips, and we're going to die anyways. And we're probably, if we're living that sort of lifestyle, a visionless, purposeless lifestyle, we'll probably die much earlier than if we risked our lives, we risked it all. That in the face of hardship, in the face of trial, in the, in the face of friction and sorrow and grief, we stood up, we woke up, and we said, I'm going to give it my all again. I'm going to step forward again because the alternative is regret. The alternative is regret and people around you. See, we, when we stand up, when we face our fears, when we risk our lives, it's not for ourselves, but it's for people around you. And the destiny of other people are locked inside of you and whether or not you will stand up and fulfill your calling, fulfill your purpose, because if you do, that will unlock the purpose and the destinies of others to enable them to own their future. So one way you can do that actively is by building a community around you brick by brick, building language, building ideas, building camaraderie, building community, building shared value and shared meaning. And one of the ways you can do that is talk about the ideas on the show or better yet, even share this show with a friend and then talk about it. And you can do that by texting them. You don't need to post it on to social media. That is all for this episode. Thank you for being here this week. Go out, face your fears, do something that scares you that Maybe you won't physically die, but it might feel like you might emotionally die because that is the way that we can uncover our purpose and own our futures.